it's uh it's interesting because you think you're ready um over and over and over again i find in scriptures old testament new testament um that there's this sense of not knowing when the day of the lord will come and and so you bring up the point are are you ready how many are ready and how many are not really ready for what god is going to do and the fact of the matter is some of us think we're ready and we're not <laughs> and some of us some of us really don't know um just how unready we are and so i pray that i pray that tonight you find yourself ready uh not just ready in the sense of yeah yeah let's do this but ready is then actually ready for what is to come in the book of Matthew, before we go to Sardis, I want to bring up this passage in Matthew because this is really a connected theme. Uh, this morning, I was Daryl was talking to me about some of the things that y'all were talking about in Sunday school, and one of the things he mentioned was people that are hypersensitive as Christians who who um, they get the feelings hurt over the littlest things, and then they just go off into whatever. Uh, we're going to talk tonight about a church that's hyposensitive. Now, if you know your Latin, you know that or you know you're Greek, it's actually Greek, hyper means over. It's too much. If you've got hypertension, your blood pressure is too high. Um, If you've got hyperthyroidism, your thyroid is uh, way overactive. Um, But there's also a hypo. That's when it's under, when it's not enough. So, So just as you can have blood pressure that's too high, you can have it too low. Just as you can have a thyroid that's too active, you can have one that's not active enough. Just as you can have certain things happen too much, you can also have certain things that happen too little. And Sardis is one of those churches that is a hyposensitive church. It's not ready because, well, we'll get into that in just a second. But listen to what Jesus says about that coming day. This isn't in the PowerPoint, uh, Daryl. But but. Con- but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken. And one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. You see, there's always this there's this doctrine that, that they call the imminence of Christ's return, that, that Christ could come back at virtually any time. And we know in certain ways, there's got to be certain things that happen before he comes back. But how do you know when those things have happened? (laughs) You don't really. I mean, you could try to guess and you could try to figure it out, but people have for 2,000 years have been trying to figure it out and try to guess, right? This isn't really an easy thing. It's not like God says, okay, when this specific event happens, you know it's time. He gives us wars and rumors of wars and all sorts of different things to look for. But these are the beginning of birth pains. But we really don't know when he's coming back. Are we ready? Or are we like the church in Sardis? Sardis was a city up on a little hill. I call it little hill because it had a big mountain right behind it. Okay, So as you approach the city, there's only one way up. 
And it wasn't a very easy way. It was a very difficult pass. In fact, they used to say that, um, that, that one of the gods, when the city was founded, walked around with a lion. That was the, the motif of the city of Sardis was a lion. And they would walk around with a lion, carrying it all around the city except for the south side of the city because every other means of getting to the city was too difficult. You couldn't get up the hills, the, the way they were steep and, and just the landscape. You couldn't get up that way. So if you wanted to come to the city, there was one door. It was through the south side. There was a hill, and it was an arduous hill to climb. It was a difficult thing to do, but you could get up that way. It was painstakingly difficult, but you could get up that way. That was the only way to enter into Sardis. In fact, now um, there's actually two cities. There's a upper city, that's the old city, and there's a lower city that as Sardis grew, it didn't have enough room up on the hill, and so they, they built down below the hill to make it a lot a lot easier to access. But Sardis... Sardis had an interesting, interesting history. Um, go, let's show a couple of pictures. First of all, Sardis was an important city um, of the day. It was kind of a regional powerhouse, so to speak, but not so much in Roman days. In Roman days, it was just a big affluent city without quite the importance. Um, the first slide here shows the gymnasium. Are you, are you having difficulty with it? Is it? There we go. Okay. There's the gymnasium. I know you were expecting basketball courts, but um, but no. This is the ancient gymnasium. They did uh, field and, and sort of events out here. The big area here is where most of the sports would be done. The This here, this facade, there's something interesting. Go to the next picture. Uh, if you're looking above, you can see several different inscriptions, and you can tell a little bit. It's kind of hard to see on this picture um, because of because of the projector and lights and everything. But this is ornate detail work. Just beautiful stuff. This inscription is an inscription about this place being dedicated to one of the Caesars. Uh, Sardis was one of the few cities that was designated as the gatekeeper for the temple, for the temple cults. Um, they would worship one of the former emperors there. And and not only did this city have one of those designations, it had it for two separate emperors. And that, to the residents of Sardis, would have been, well, it would have been, it would have been like, it would have been like uh, Boston with how we think of the American Revolution. So much history and so many good things to brag about and come see all the sights and, and come experience all the experiences around it. I mean, you could walk the Liberty Walk. You can go from place to place to place. You could see places where different things were done and how all these sorts of things happened in American history right there in one city in Boston. So, kind of similar with Philadelphia and the Liberty Bell, you know. Philly has the Liberty Bell and they have Independence Hall and those kinds of things. And that's those are very historic sites. The people would come from all kinds of places to see them. That's kind of what Sardis was in realm of emperor worship. But one of the interesting things um, was that this city got captured and destroyed twice. Both times it was from the same reason. Sardis was, by their account, impregnable. It would be too hard for an army to get up to the city. So they didn't have a guard at night. Both times it was captured. It was captured 
um, through a night offensive where the opposing military leaders staged an offensive at night and brought their armies up that hill, up that one side, straight, straight to the south side. And when the first folks got there, they noticed Sardis didn't even have a guard. They didn't even know that they were about to be attacked. And the city was taken twice that same way. But one interesting thing about the city, one more thing that I want to note. In most Roman cities of the day, Jews were a scourge. Most most Gentiles would look at the Jews as troublemakers. I mean, after all, they don't worship Caesar. They don't do all the stuff that we're supposed to do. They take a day off every week. Yeah. So the Jews were really a scourge. Not so in Sardis. Show this picture of, this is inside a synagogue. And what you've got are these two things right here. This little alcove and this one right here. One of them would have been the place, they call it the Ark in a synagogue, but it's where they keep the Torah. They have parchment and and the scrolls of the law of God written down. And every, every Sabbath, they would join together. They had a table that you can't see in this picture, but they would spread out the scrolls and they would take turns as a congregation, as a, as a synagogue, reading a portion from the scripture. It's one of the coolest things. I think if there's one thing that I wish I could take from Judaism and import it into Baptist life, it would be everybody reading the word of God together every single, every single worship service. Not just me reading and you reading along in your Bible, but, but everybody taking a turn to read before the whole congregation. I think that would be one of the coolest things. Um, but some of y'all just don't want to stand up in front of people. So I understand that. But anyway, the Jews in this city were pretty comfortable. There wasn't a whole lot of fussing and fighting between Jews and Gentiles. They got along pretty well. Even the Christians really weren't persecuted all that much. Very little from time to time. It was comfortable. I think that's why this church has the problems it has in Sardis. Read with me, Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church at Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garments. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Pray with me. Father, we pray we would learn the lessons from Sardis. Speak through the millennia, through the history and the context, but most importantly through your word. Speak to us. We, your servants, are listening. In Christ's name, amen. To the angel of the church in Sardis. Now, what do you write to a a church in a city that has life easy? Jesus identifies himself, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Remember, all of these come from Revelation chapter 1. Jesus refers to, uh, in fact, in Revelation 1, he refers to it twice. In verse 4, he talks about uh, grace and peace, 
Grace to you and peace from him who uh, who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Some people take this seven spirit thing to mean all kinds of different things. Maybe they're angelic beings or maybe it's God has these different sorts of spirits uh, uh, that whatever. But he's talking about God the Father and then he's talking about these spirits and then he's talking about Jesus Christ. It just seems natural to want to say that seven, those seven spirits, John must be referring to God himself. He's not just referring to some being that God has made. He's got to be referring to God. I mean, after all, you got the Father and the Son right there. Why not the Holy Spirit to complete the Trinity? Maybe this, maybe he's referring back to Isaiah chapter 11. In Isaiah 11, um, Isaiah looks forward to the Messiah. And it's God the Father speaking. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and might. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You see, there is coming a day when Messiah takes reign. And when Messiah takes reign, the spirit that is on him, the spirit of God is something that's so incredible that no one has ever seen before. It goes on to talk about the wolf laying down with the lamb. How many times, how many of you, uh, uh, how many of you would buy lambs and get wolves and put them in the same pen? Messiah ain't going to have to worry about that. His reign is so supreme that he is able to let the wolf and the lamb lie together because he knows that wolf ain't there going to cross him. That wolf, even with that nature that none of us could possibly think of containing, that the Messiah has such dominion, he is able to control the wolf and keep him from devouring the lamb. I mean, he's the one who controlled lions and kept them from devouring Daniel. He's the one who promises to control the beast in Ezekiel. Remember that covenant of peace that he makes? I'm going to take care of the beast. You're not going to have a problem with wild beasts because I'm going to stop them. This is the one who has ultimate dominion. Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills this. And this is the spirit that's setting on him. Then he says again in verse 16, in his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, I don't know how you hold a star in your hand. Nonetheless, seven of them. But these seven stars, these are the messengers of the churches. He says, I've got both. I've got the seven spirits, that full, complete spirit of God, that Holy Spirit in its entirety. There's not a piece or a portion, not, not a little, not a little, um, a slice off. You know, he doesn't even, if you think of the Holy Spirit like a cake, he doesn't even take the corner piece. He gets the whole thing. And yet this church of Sardis has somehow missed that. He needs to be reminded. How do I know that they've missed it? Well, keep reading. I know your works. He keeps saying this over and over to churches. Maybe maybe we should take note. He knows our works, church. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That word reputation, it's actually the Greek word name. Remember when I told you that Sardis had the distinction of being the, the, um, the gatekeepers of the emperor cults? Two different ones. About, about the only thing 
when you think of an ancient city, a Roman city, and how they identify themselves, they identify themselves as their name, and they identify themselves by the gods that they worship. Great as Artemis of the Ephesians. In Ephesus, it was Artemis. Here, it was two of these emperors. I, we don't even know which two emperors he's talking about. Isn't that funny? The thing that's so revered and so worshipped now, we don't even we don't even know the name. It's kind of like Pharaoh in the Exodus. We don't even know which Pharaoh. We know the names of the two handmaidens, the the the, the two nurses that brought babies, Hebrew babies, against Pharaoh's will to life and kept them from Pharaoh. We know the two midwives' names, but we don't know the name of the Pharaoh. What is so revered and so worshipped has been forgotten. Isn't that funny? You bring such pride among yourselves, among your city, for all of these great things of Sardis and all of the, the emperor worship that you do, the titles and the distinctions that you hold. You have the reputation, the name that you are alive and you're proud of it, but you're really dead. I've known some churches with the reputation of being alive, but are dead. Have you? I've known some churches with the reputation of being dead, but they're really alive. You met some of those? I have. This church looks from the outside to be great. Everything's comfortable. Everything's nice. This is probably the nicest church in all Asia. I mean, they don't have, they don't have the cheap carpet. They have the good stuff. They don't have the hard wooden pews that nobody can get comfortable on. They're not, they're in nice cushion pews like we've got. If you've ever been in a church with, with just wooden pews with no cushion, you know what I'm talking about. That gets rough after a while. They don't have the rinky dink place. They have good stuff. They have plenty of food. Life is easy, but they're dead. God help us not be Sardis. He doesn't even say anything nice. This is one of two churches that John does not compliment the church as a whole. Ephesus was doing great stuff. They left their love, but they were doing great stuff. Pergamum, standing firm on some things. Smyrna, Smyrna was really facing a lot of hardship, but was patiently enduring. Thyatira, even Thyatira gets praise for their love and faith and service and endurance. Sardis doesn't even get a compliment. Let that sink in. There's a few who will be complimented, but not the church. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but are dead. Verse 2. Wake up! I love doing that. Sorry. <laughs> Maybe I need to put in a defib in the back before we do that again. Uh, wake up! Don't you see? You are so lazy because things are so easy for you that you've fallen asleep. Wake up! I think back to Michael Green. Keith Green, excuse me. Michael Green had some good stuff too, but he's not the one I'm thinking of. Keith Green, asleep in the light. How can you be so numb not to care if they come? You close your eyes and pretend the job's done. He had a way of writing the happiest sounding songs with the most... Hard-hitting lyrics you could possibly imagine. The world is sleeping in the dark that the church just can't fight because it's asleep in the light. How can you be so dead when you've been so well-fed? Wake up. How easy it is for us to be lulled to sleep uh, things that are easy and, and simple. And you don't have to work very hard. We used to have to work for all kinds of stuff. How many of you washed laundry by hand? Good for you. How many of you would do it again? <laughs> Linda's like, I got nothing to do. I'll, I'll do it. But the rest of you like, no way. 
We have life so easy. We get mad when our fast food takes five minutes, right? And, and, and get it to the microwave and hit the right buttons, right? Yeah. We have life so easy. How easy is it for us to fall asleep on the job when it comes to our Christianity? How easy for it, for it is it for us to fall asleep? Because things are on autopilot. We don't have to do a lot. We don't have to really stand for our faith because there's no persecution. We can say, oh, there's things here and there. But in reality, we got it easy. And how easy is it for us to fall asleep because things are just going okay? The problem is that the scripture never calls us to a faith that naps. Remember the ant? I'm not saying only sleep 16 minutes a day. What I am saying is that we've got to be diligent to do the work before us because there's too much work for us to sleep. There's too much to do for us not not to get in. And you know the problem is when you haven't been working for a while and then you start working again, it's really hard. Like how many of you uh, uh, take 30 minute breaks at work and then you don't want to go back to work? <laughs> like you're going, you're going, you're hustling, you're whatever. And then you sit down for lunch and you just don't want to get back up. Yeah. I'm going to tell you something before, before working in fast food. And it was a little bit like this in retail, but before working in fast food, um, I enjoyed my break. Now working in fast food, I, I've gotten to the point where I can't enjoy my break anymore. Because if I get too relaxed, it's too hard to get back into, you know, it takes too long to recuperate and, and get back into the swing of things. Especially at Prattville. That, that place is moving. I came from a store where uh, we did in a week what Prattville does, sometimes in a Saturday, sometimes less than their Saturday. I can't enjoy my break. <laughs> I have to, I have to be ready. I, like, I got to stay on my toes. I can't. I can't sit back and relax because then I'll never catch up. <laughs> it's so easy to fall asleep when the work's not that hard. But I got to be honest with you, church. I think a lot of this comes from the fact that they just didn't see a lot of hard work. People weren't persecuting them. People weren't sorely against them. And so the church just got complacent. Said, oh, okay. I mean, after all, these are good folks. Yeah, okay. They, they worship Caesar, but I mean, he's a nice guy. Yeah, we're buds. We go to the gymnasium and throw discuses together. I don't know, what do you do in ancient Rome? The movies, maybe the theater, maybe. Little by little, bit by bit, they fall asleep and he tells them wake up and strengthen what remains. You know, there is a little bit left. This church is not completely lost. I find it interesting that some people, uh, you look at the situation and you think, oh man, this is hopeless. I mean, what are we going to do if... I've listened to a person talking and it's depressing because they're telling me about all these problems and they're telling me about all these bad stuff and all these big, larger than life kind of things that are going on that, that there's no hope for me to control, no hope for me to have any input on. How can I, what can we do? It's all hopeless if you listen to the right people or maybe if you listen to the wrong people. Because if you listen to the right people, they have the perspective of God that says God is still God. And it doesn't matter how far away you've gone from Him, how much you've been napping. It doesn't matter. Wake up, strengthen what remains. Because it's about to die. You have the reputation for being alive, but you're dead. And if you don't stay on it, if you don't wake up and you don't build up what remains, that's going to die too and then it's all going to be gone. 
There is never a situation while we are still breathing as a church that God has said, I'm completely and totally done with you. No more. Which means that if we're asleep, we're letting things happen that God doesn't want to happen. We've got to wake up, strengthen what remains. We've got to go after it, church. Else what we do have will die too. Remember then, oh, oh, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Another way to read that, the Greek is all jumbled up. And so it's difficult to know exactly how to read that. Another way to read that is, for I have found your works have not been completed in the sight of my God. I ain't done with you, church. I ain't done. You think I'm done. You think it's all over. You think that you can just rest easy. You can just go into retirement and never be bothered again, but I ain't done with you. Get up, get to work, because I ain't finished with you yet. The other side is, I've seen your work and (laughs) you got a long way to go. In either case, what God wants this church to do has not been completed. So he tells them, wake up, strengthen. Third, Third thing he tells them, verse 30, remember, remember, remember what? Remember then what you have received and heard. Notice this is a church that's asleep and he's laying a bunch of action words. Wake up, strengthen, remember, remember what you have received and heard. That's the gospel. That's the gospel message. When they heard the gospel, they took it to heart. They listened to it. They accepted it. This is why they're a church and why they're just not a bunch of Jews. Why they're not just a bunch of Gentiles. This is the church of Jesus Christ in Sardis. And it's the church because they received the gospel. And Jesus says, remember the gospel. Don't forget it. Don't let it fall back into the depths of your memory somewhere way back there. Don't put it on that way back burner. You know, the one that kind of halfway lights but doesn't get lit all the way. Yeah, don't put it on that one. Get it front and center. Remember the gospel. Remembering has not only the cogn- not only the uh, 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 bringing it to your mind, but keeping it in your mind. Keep remembering it. Put it over and over and over again into your thoughts. Apply it. Apply it. Apply it. Meditate on it. Meditate on it. Meditate on it. Turn it over and over and over again. Don't let it leave your consciousness. This isn't just, oh yeah, I remember that, and then let it go. It's just keep it there in your mind. Keep it. Very next phrase, keep it. Don't lose it. Don't let it fall off. Don't let it drown out. Don't let it be subverted. Observe it. Keep watch over it. Guard it. Don't let it fall away and repent. He wants them to wake up, to strengthen what they have, to remember what they've received, to watch over it and guard it and not let it go. And all of that's going to bring them to repentance. Now, I thought, this is kind of interesting. Why would he put repent last? Of those five commands that he gives, why would repent be the last one? Why wouldn't repent be the first one? Shouldn't they repent first and then everything else? I don't think so. How many of you, how many of you have realized that you are doing something wrong for such a long time? I mean, just, just for years and years or decades of your life and tried to stop it right away. Like it's, Like you knew you fell under conviction about it. You tried to stop it right away. Anybody, did it work? No. Do you know why not? I think a lot of what happens is that we come with God with a, okay, get rid of this problem. Like this is, this is really, I'm convicted for this sin. Get rid of it. 
and we ask God to get rid of it. We ask God for forgiveness, and then it doesn't hurt so bad anymore, so we just, we don't develop any other habit. It's like we forget it. It's like we're just, and pretty soon we're right back into it. I think repent is last because it needs to be last in the sequence. First of all, if you're about dead, you need to be alive first, <laughs> right? You, you don't, you don't treat high blood pressure when the person's having a heart attack. You treat the heart attack first. Then you deal with the other stuff, right? With Marie, one of the concerns was if we try to get the kidneys to work, it could affect the heart. If we try to get the heart to work, it could affect the kidneys. It's like, you know, one part of the problem is what takes highest priority? What do we deal with first? When we wake up and we seek to strengthen and we remember and we keep the gospel front and center, God is working to change us in that whole process so that by the time we get to repent, we are ready to repent. Not just because we feel so bad about the sin, but because we want what God wants. He has changed the mind. That word repent, it literally means to change the mind. Metanoia is the Greek word. Change the mind. It's not just okay, I, di- I, I agreed with this, but you've shown me better evidence, so now I disagree with that and I agree with this. It's a complete change in the way that we think. One, one, um, Romans 12, one, um, one translation puts it this way. Do not be conformed to the patterns of the world, but let God transform you by changing the way that you think. The whole idea is we don't just need to think new thoughts. We need a new way of thinking. And what he's doing here, wake up, strengthen what you have, remember what you've received, keep it. That is changing the way that we think. Instead of thinking about, oh, life is so easy and grand and I don't have to do anything and I'm not under any pressure and man, this is comfortable. I like this chair. Let me sit down a while and rest. Instead of thinking that way, we start to think gospel, gospel, gospel. What does the gospel say? Gospel says that I'm a sinner. And that I need salvation from my sin. That's not comfortable. That's the hard wooden pew. That's not the nice comfy padded chair that we sleep in when we should be in our beds. That's not that nice comfortable place to sit with the good view of the TV that's all, uh, that's air conditioned or heated in the winter. That, that's nice. It's got our, it's got our side table right there to hold whatever we want it to hold. And we're, we're nice and comfy and we can just click the remote and put whatever channel we want on and we're, we're perfectly happy. That's not what this needs. What we need is a different way of thinking that says the gospel is central to life. And if I am going to live, I have to live as Christ. Because to live is Christ and to die is gain. There's no other option. And so it becomes us living in God's way instead of us living in our own way. And that's when repentance really takes root. Repentance isn't just about saying a prayer and asking for forgiveness. It's about actually following through on the prayer and living in obedience afterwards. It's not just turning from sin. It's walking the other direction. That's why repentance lasts. It's not that we repent last. It's that all of this culminates in full-fledged repentance. It's building it bit by bit, block by block, until repentance is a reality and not just a passing emotion. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. Remember Jesus' words? You don't know what hour the Son of God is coming. Like a thief in the night. Anytime now. 
You will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. People who have not soiled their garment. By the way, did you know Sardis is a plural word? There's two cities, remember. There's the one on the hill and there's the one down below. It's like they're saying there's two different churches here. There's the Most of the church is falling asleep. There's a few who have not soiled their garments. There's a few who aren't drooling on their pillows. There's a few who are still living the life that I want you to live. And they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. White to us designates purity. In fact, there's, there's some other folks in Revelation that wear white. The souls who were slain for the word of God, asking God, when will you judge? When will you do what you're going to do? 6.11, then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete were to be killed as they themselves had been. Next chapter over. After this I looked, and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Did you catch what they were wearing? Clothed in white robes. Those folks who remain faithful, those folks who don't fall asleep, who don't get lulled in by the world's lullaby, do not have soiled garments. They wear a robe of righteousness because they're worthy. The one who conquers will get the same white robes they do. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. You know when you blot something out, when you no longer need it. Someone owes you money, they pay all of it back, you blot their name out. When you no longer need their name in that book, you blot it out. God says, I'm not going to blot you out. I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. The one who's confessing my name, I'll confess. The angels don't really matter. They just happen to be in the room when God's there. The one that matters is the Father. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The lesson of Sardis is twofold. First, wake up. Don't get lulled to sleep just because things are easy. Don't get trapped in this idyllic setting. and Let your Christianity simply become sitting on the premises. You know, the, the hymn, sitting on the premises. Sitting on the premises, sitting on the premises. Sitting on the premises, not doing a thing. Sitting on the premises, sitting on the premises. I'm sitting on the premises of church. Y'all know that? No, we can't do that. God's called us to a mission that is not done. So wake up. Don't fall asleep. I know some of you are weary and worn. Some of you feel like I have been wrestling with this for my whole life, and I am fighting the good fight, and... Maybe your time is close to being done. Maybe it's not close enough. Keep on. God sees you. He knows the effort you're putting in. Stay true. But for those of you who are sleeping, don't make me get loud. I'll turn that mic up all the way. You know I will. For those of you who have been lulled to sleep, wake up. It's time to get to work. There's a white robe waiting for you, church. Proud to be among you. Father, I pray that we would make you proud. That we would not fall asleep. That we would not fall into the trap of 
letting the ease of the day lull us to sleep. But Father, we pray that you'd keep us vigilant and alert. Help us be ready. Whether you come soon, whether you wait a while, Father, make us ready, ready for your work, ready for your will, ready for that great day in which your work is complete. May we not be found among the napping, but among the faithful and diligent ones working for your glory. We love you, Lord. In Christ's name.